we do indeed share a great deal. That's amazing. Uh, it really is. Uh, I don't speak at conferences very much anymore, uh, probably for a lot of reasons. Uh, I was really thrilled to accept this invitation, however, because although I know not all of you go to Christ Community Church here, and you are very welcome, but to some extent, I am speaking church to church because my experience, we moved back to America three years ago, and my experience has been multiple times in multiple venues that uh, I walk into a room and Christ Community just left five minutes ago. We share an enormous number of tendrils of interest in what it means to follow the Lord Jesus and to proclaim him in this day uh, in multiple ways. Uh, For example, listening to jazz. I I love jazz. I'm not used to listening to it without cigarette smoke or at nine in the morning. So, uh, and so it's really wonderful to be here with this congregation, especially as you together, uh, you've always been evangelical, you've always been evangelistic, but as you try to make a emphasis and really begin thinking about what it would mean to proclaim the Lord Jesus um, in this day, in this place. It's wonderful to have a small part in that to help kick that off. Well, here are my prayers and my goals for today, and they're larger than I can possibly accomplish, and so we need God's help. I'm not actually a baritone. I'm recovering from whatever pandemic it is we're all suffering from, and so uh, my condolences to the the audiovisual guys trying to make me heard. Do forgive me. But these are my prayers and my goals that today that we would discuss together, and there will be questions later on this afternoon, a time for discussion, that we will discuss some ideas together that hopefully we are following the Holy Spirit in, but that we won't leave it just that discussion of ideas, but that as we think about them deeply, that these will make us aware of God's love for us, and therefore we will be grateful to him because it's really in my own life it has been more recent than I would like to admit that it was when I really had a grasp increasingly of how much God loved me that that was the motivation for becoming more eager to proclaim the Lord Jesus Uh, so I would hope that we will be more grateful to the living God that 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 will also move you on then to not just as I think I think it's a universal that as we're aware of how much God cares for us, knowing us thoroughly, and yet loves us. And in my case, that's an amazing statement. He knows all of my darkness and yet cares for me. That that will move us on to love of our neighbors because I would say that I would encourage you not to do evangelism if you do not love the people that you're talking to. To do evangelism from a place of hatred or judgment is to misapprehend the gospel profoundly so that we will be grateful to God, love our neighbors, and that then the magic will happen, that those ideas will actually change your behavior and that your behavior will be changed as many people as there are in this room in that many ways. I'm not here to tell you how you should behave, but I think that if you grasp God's love, if you love your neighbor, if you have the fire in your bones to want to make him known both for his glory and your neighbor's good, that that will manifest itself in 500 different ways in this place. Not one size fits all. Although there are wonderful programs, just talking to a brother before this, there are wonderful programs that we can use together to proclaim Jesus. If we don't do these things, if these goals are not met, discussion of ideas, are you listening? Discussion of ideas apart from that 
is vanity. I am wasting my time and you are wasting yours. Let's, let's not do that. We don't have to. So let's pray together, please. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, to whom every desire is known, please grant that we may hear your voice and give us the courage to love our neighbors and to do your will for your glory and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now this next part is the audience participation portion of the talk, okay? <clears throat> if you don't cooperate with me, not much is going to happen. I want to engage your imagination, okay? I'm going to lay out a situation and I want you to put yourself in it and I want you to imagine a face and a name of the person because here's the situation. You have an acquaintance and you're reasonably comfortable with them. You're not close friends, but you're reasonably comfortable to them. One of the things that you know about them, and it's just come out over time, is that they're not a churchgoer. They're not a churchgoer. You haven't particularly spoken about religion before, but you know that they don't, aren't part of a community. Okay, do you have their name and their face in mind? If not, well, it's obvious where your first step is, is that you need to know some people that aren't churchgoers, right? Okay. Well, one day, <clears throat> you're having a conversation with them, and you're busy, but you're always busy, right? You're busy, but then they stop you dead in your tracks just as you're about to leave the coffee shop or wherever it is, and they ask you three questions, and they ask it without a particular edge to them. They say, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does a person become a Christian? And then lastly, do you think it's important that I become one? Okay, three questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? How does one become a Christian? And do you think it's important if I become one? Okay, now this is the dangerous part of the lecture in that I want you to think, and I'm going to give you more time than you're used to in a public lecture. I'm going to give you two minutes. I want you to think what you would say to that friend with those three questions, okay? Two minutes, go.
Okay. <clears throat> the purpose of my lecture this morning is to talk about a theology of evangelism. And the answer that you just concocted in your mind, to a large extent, tells you a great deal about your theology of evangelism. Because you have one. Even if you're here this morning, I don't know why you would be to some extent, but even if you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, whatever it was that you thought, for good or ill, during those two minutes is your own theology of evangelism as well. And whether you would find that situation and those three questions in a busy conversation, welcome or not, how, did, how would that make you feel? Well, that also tells you a great deal about your attitude as it is right now towards evangelism. Is that something that you would long to have occur? Or is that something that you would very, as I have done, see the storm clouds on the horizon of, oh my goodness, an important religious conversation, and very deftly take it into, hey, how about those Yankees, <laughs> right? So we didn't have to talk about it. I've had that experience in my life only twice where somebody has asked me the equivalent of those three questions. But notice your own emotional environment because you might have been nervous and going, where is Ravi Zacharias when you need him? <coughs> Some Christian extrovert who would come and do a better job at this than me. But if you found yourself imaginatively actually trying to engage your friend, actually trying to talk to them, then you were giving an account for the hope that is within you. So in a, a theology of evangelism, as I think of it, has five parts, five parts. What story to tell? Who needs to hear the story? What is to be the response to the story? What role does God play in the story? And who is to do the telling? Those are the five parts as I think of it. I'm not a great theologian, so doubtless there are people here going, oh, there's number six, but these are my five. What story to tell? Who needs to hear the story? What is to be the response to the story? What role does God play in the story? And who is to do the telling? Well, here's a story. This is mine. I don't know what you said. All right? This is one way. Every person without exception has done wrong. And they all know it. Everyone has violated their conscience. But this is where we disagree with one another. Doing those wrong things is not just contrary to that person, that individual's conscience. But it also can be, it isn't always, because there is such a thing as false guilt, but it is contrary to the Creator God's will and law. The Creator's anger is poured out impartially whenever he encounters evil. Impartially. The book of Romans uses that for God's wrath three times. God's anger is impartial. But Jesus, the Son of God, the only Son of God, came and lived amongst us. He was the only human ever to be innocent, to never violate either his conscience or the living God's law. He never did evil. And so there was no reason for God to be angry at him whatsoever. He was not recognized, however. He came and he dwelt amongst his people. They did not recognize him, and they killed him. They did so in a mixture of envy and threat, threatened by his words and threatened by his life. They did so because they wanted to look after their own interests and power, they used the Romans to do it for them. However, and this is very unusual, so unusual that David Hume, the philosopher, said it can't have happened because it's so improbable. Three days after the murder, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead 
He stayed and taught for a while with his favorite disciples. And then he ascended back to where he came from. God uses this terrible story, this worst of all crimes, the only innocent human being killed by those who should have loved him and should have worshipped him. He uses this worst of human tragedies as the way to reconcile people to himself. Because Jesus did not die for his own sins, he is the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's a story. Now what does it mean to be a Christian? And here are those of you who have studied medieval philosophy, probably lots of people, although Kansas is continually surprising me. There may be medievalists in the You'll know where I'm getting this from. But a Christian is someone who knows the story. But a Christian is not just someone who knows the story. A Christian is someone who knows the story and believes it to be true. Ah. But a Christian is someone who knows the story, believes it to be true, but also trusts God to keep his promises. That's what a Christian is. How does one become a Christian? By trusting God that he through Christ will keep his promise and that even my own sin, dark as it is, and the majority of my sins have occurred since I first named the Lord Jesus, that he is going to keep his promise and he is going to forgive me. Now should my friend become a Christian? By all means, Christ is the way that God has made We are not free to invent our own ways to be reconciled with the living God. This is the way that he is supplied. Okay, ready? How does that compare to your answer? Note that we tell the story and show the person's place within it, don't we? And I love telling the story because, as has already been said in a prayer, it is the power of the living God for salvation to everyone who believes, to people of every time and every culture. But it is difficult, isn't it? How do you know when you've said enough? How do you know if you've included unnecessary baggage? You don't have to mention the Romans when you talk about the gospel. And it could be said more abstractly. We don't have to tell it in a story form, do we? I'd be very interested, perhaps this afternoon when we have the, the open mic time, we can talk about your stories and where you felt that you must include something that I did not where you thought that I added something that was unnecessary. Here's what I want to talk about theologically. Does this story change? Does this story change? No. And yes. No, there is only one gospel message for all time. Yes. Every time it is told, it is told in a culture and in a particular situation. The story I just told you is the product of 19th and 20th century Protestant evangelicalism, right? At other times in history, you would have heard it told very differently than that. And today, in different churches, on different continents, on different street corners, you could hear it told differently. Think of all the things that I left out How could I leave out the need to repent of one's sins, right? If you heard my story and you felt like, yep, he got it all, well, I left that out. Does that matter? Did you put it in yours? Did you feel its lack in mine? How could I leave out, oh, this one may 
interest some of you. How can I leave out being baptized? Was that in yours? Did you hear its lack in mine? But in the Pentecost sermon, very early on, when they asked the apostle Peter and the, and the other apostles, brothers, after hearing about Jesus, brothers, what must we do? The answer was, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Every age and every church tradition makes choices about how much is necessary to hear and believe in its evangelism. I know that makes you feel or it makes me feel a little queasy, a little uncertain, a little nervous. Every age and every church tradition makes choices about how much is necessary to hear and believe in its evangelism. You cannot say everything that is true in one conversation, can you? And in fact, very practically this afternoon, perhaps we'll mention one of the problems we can make is feeling under, it comes out under pressure, doesn't it? We so rarely talk about Jesus that if someone were to ask these questions, we would probably say too much. And one of the things I find is very helpful is, no, leave them hungry. You know, say enough, but you don't have to say everything. Make them want to come back and ask you another question some other time. You cannot say everything that is true. And every version of the story, this is the most important part of the lecture, every version of the story can lead to wrong places that then need to be repaired and improved upon. Let me give you an example, okay? The gospel story that I have outlined to you, what I said, is true. I believe it with all my heart. I have never suffered deeply for the gospel, but there was one time in Asia where I was told that the police were coming to bust uh, the church and whoever was preaching was going to prison. The person who told me that didn't know that I was the person preaching. And it was odd that I found that I was willing to go to church that morning and preach. I haven't suffered deeply for the gospel but I was very surprised to find that I was willing to face it. The other thing that, just in God's providence, how good he is, the other thing that my friend didn't know when he told me that story was that under my Bible and my sermon preparations, I was studying church history by, um, back then we didn't have the internet even. Oh. I was doing it by correspondence. And I was, had gotten to the part about persecution in the Roman Empire. So all I had to do was move my Bible and go, this is no new thing, this is no new thing. This is what God's people have always faced. And I took great courage from that. Every version of the story can lead to wrong places that then need to be repaired and improved upon. Let me give you an example. The gospel story I have outlined is true, but it has led, the story I just told, has led to two problems that need to be repaired and improved upon. It has contributed to a kind of Gnosticism. We'll talk about that and it has contributed to a rampant individualism. Now Gnosticism, some of you aren't familiar with it, but I find it an overused word. But it's really at basis, it's a division between the spiritual, which is seen as important, and the physical, which is seen as unimportant, or at worst, even evil. Now Christians would not say that, but did you notice that in my story, the story that I told, there was absolutely no mention of obedience to the will of Jesus, only trust in what he has done for us. And for some of you, that is absolutely central 
to the gospel presentation, as it ought to be. But our Protestant gospel is so afraid of people thinking that they can merit their own salvation that when they tell this gospel story, we do not mention that we are taking on a master. We do not mention that those who love Jesus are those who obey him. And so, as we read the Bible, we have to explain away sometimes. I found myself doing this. Explaining away Jesus' own words and attitudes, Paul's words and attitudes, James's words and attitudes. Listen very carefully. You have to discern here. <clears throat> we are right to teach that salvation is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. That is the side of our story we tell when faced by anyone who thinks that they can merit reconciliation with God by good behavior and self-sacrifice. Nothing is more of a turnoff and robs a room of oxygen than talk of church history, but I'm going to chance it this morning, okay? Here we go. We turn, of course, to Martin Luther in the 16th century. Uh, we always say the great German uh, reformer the interesting thing, of course, is that Luther would never probably have considered himself a German. He was of a particular place. There were lots of different places. So when we call him a great German, that's something we put back on Luther in some ways. But Martin Luther in the 16th century, that's the 1500s, discovered very powerfully and very personally that we are made innocent in God's eyes by trusting in what Jesus did in his sacrifice. That's how it works. And Luther went on to say that the church in his day had taken on more authority than it should and that what was to be included in the gospel was to be found in the authority of the scriptures alone. How do you know what story to tell? What's in the scriptures. And this, of course, was very threatening to the Catholic church of his day. And Luther was protected from the long arm of the Pope by his own German prince. Can you feel it? He's... He has discovered something. He has discovered something central to the gospel. He's critical of the church. He has the protection of his local prince. Then there was a peasant's revolt in 1524. Some of you will know about this more than I do. There was a peasant's revolt in 1524. And the peasants claimed to be following the teachings of Luther. The peasants put forth a document, you can Google this and read them all, a document that we call the 12 Articles of the Black Forest. The 12 Articles of the Black Forest. And these man's demands today would be seen as very just for workers. I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams would have approved of the 12 Articles wholeheartedly. And in fact, these same 12 Articles were largely implemented in Germany far later in 1848. The peasants thought that the gospel that Luther was teaching entailed things that they needed and wanted. Listen just to a part of Article 12. I know it's hard to listen to a talking head. But here's Article 12. It says, It is our decision and final opinion that if one or several of the articles mentioned herein are not in accordance with the word of God, those we shall refrain from if it be explained to us on the basis of Scripture. Can you hear how in conjunction that is with Luther's teaching? How do we know what is true? We get it from the Scriptures. If we are holding something that isn't found in the Bible, we will stop holding that thing. 
Now the peasants thought that the gospel Luther was teaching entailed these things. These things, they said, flowed from the gospel and are established on the authority of the Bible. But, dear Luther sided against the peasants. Because of the protection of his prince, and the peasants, of course, were very threatening to the power of the nobles, and because of some revolutionary violence on the peasants' part, some people did get out of control and do bad things. And so Luther wrote his pamphlet against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants. A bestseller, I'm sure. Against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants, in which he called upon the nobles to put the peasants down with real violence. Here's my point, and I know it can seem a long way from evangelism. Luther helped repair what had been lost to reestablish the truth that we are made righteous in God's judgment by our trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus alone. But can you feel that Luther, who surely discovered something very true and central to the gospel, had an opportunity to show that this gospel's message implied a real change in society's institutions. And he lost the chance. Now here's, I want to get to the point quickly. We this morning, we this day, are talking about the need to proclaim the Lord Jesus verbally to our neighbors. Next year, this church is bringing somebody from International Justice Mission to talk about what that entails in society. But I just want to fire one across the bow right from the very beginning. Anyone who has been involved in global missions, especially in the developing world, knows that it is unnecessary to divorce deeds of love and mercy from proclaiming the Lord Jesus verbally. You do not have to divorce those two from one another. And I do not want these two conferences as they're set up to accidentally send that message. The peasants, claim were, peasants' claims were too radical for Luther, but they would not be seen so later. Lutheranism, without ever meaning to, and I know I'm in the Midwest, doubtless there are Lutherans in front of me, Lutheranism, without ever meaning to, was so tied to God's grace that it made no demands in certain areas of life and thought it was right to do so. Now, forward to the last century. I'm old and middle-aged and so my examples are 20th century. Even though we're almost a full decade into the 21st, what is wrong with me? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, was a Lutheran pastor and in his book on the Sermon of the Mount, which we call The Cost of Discipleship, he had, or felt he had to, repair and correct things that Luther had done in what he so memorably referred to as cheap grace. The first three chapters of that book are really worth uh, reading, The Cost of Discipleship. And this is the formula that Herr Dr. Bonhoeffer came up with. Only he who obeys, forgive me, start again. Only he who believes obeys. And only he who obeys believes. Only he who believes obeys, and only he who obeys believes. You see, in my 20th century evangelical gospel, we are very comfortable with only he who believes obeys. God saved us in order to do good works, which he prepared for us beforehand. But we are profoundly uncomfortable with the side of the formula that says only he who obeys believes. Now, why is this? 
Some of you could stand up here and explain it probably better than I do. This is because I think we are afraid of the monster. We are afraid of the monster of salvation by works. And that monster does, in the 21st century, show up sometimes. But when we divide the two parts of Bonhoeffer's formula, we end up with a kind of Gnosticism. We can be, I have seen this in people's lives, and, but when I name it, I know it sounds crazy. We can be afraid to do good because we might get confused and be trying to save ourselves or ingratiate ourselves to God. We think it very out of place to mention any call of Jesus to obedience when we do evangelism, don't we? Bonhoeffer, of course, was murdered by the German army just five days before his camp was liberated. They knew the war was over and they killed him anyway. So there is Luther's discovery, Bonhoeffer's correction, and now if I might use a third person, listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't know if anyone here reads him, but in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, on the beatitude that says, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. You able to listen to another quote? I, I see some yawns in the audience. With my veterinary background, can I tell you, when you yawn, that means that you're hypoxic, you don't have enough oxygen in your blood. All you need to be doing is breathing more deeply. <clears throat> this is something that conference speakers have to learn because you're sitting here, Ravi, goodness, Zacharias is in front of you. You can't possibly go, <laughs> and so what you do is you start breathing deeply to kill the yawn. Okay, so some of you guys start breathing, all right? <clears throat> here is Martin Lloyd-Jones. You have to listen carefully. We must realize that it does not mean suffering for religio-political reasons. Suffering for righteousness sake is not suffering for religio-political reasons. Now it is the simple truth to say that there were Christian people in Nazi Germany who were not only ready to practice and live the Christian faith, but who preached it in the open air and yet were not molested. But we know of certain others who were put into prisons and concentration camps, and we should be careful to see why this happened to them. And I think if you draw that distinction, you will find it was generally something political. I need not point out that I am not attempting to excuse Hitlerism, but I am trying to remind every Christian of this vital distinction. If you and I begin to mix our religion and our politics, then we must not be surprised if we receive persecution. But I suggest that it will not of necessity be persecution for righteousness' sake. Did you hear Martin Lloyd-Jones? Someone who was a very important leader in 20th century evangelicalism, and I admire him enormously. And I have to agree, in fact, from being in Europe for 12 years and returning to the United States just three years ago, I have to agree that we must be very careful about mixing religion and politics. But, can you hear how this divides Christian belief from the world? How this feeds Gnosticism? Because I put it to you, as humbly as I know how to, that doing evangelism, proclaiming the Lord Jesus, innocent, murdered, resurrected, and reigning, that, that that story should have put you in, Hitler's, in prison in Hitler's Germany. And that Jesus would mean for it too.
Because see, we are so afraid of making the gospel message manifest itself physically in everyday life that becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't change us from our culture whatsoever. We are so afraid of the monster of salvation by works that we can make the gospel message devoid of anything other than mental assent to propositions. Mental assent to propositions. Now you may not know anything about the Brie Fellowship nor anything about Francis Schaeffer, but some of you shall. And this was Francis Schaeffer's fear in the second third of the 20th century. Lack of confidence in the authority of the Bible made him dwell upon the fact that God's inspired word can be put into propositions. That is, normal human language. But Schaefer was fighting the monster, a different monster. He was fighting the monster of liberal theology, which taught that human language cannot bear the weight of divine revelation. Right? That sounds so exalted. God's word is so important. You can't put it into sentences. And Schaefer had to come along and go, no, you can Schaefer would never say that saving faith in Jesus was just mental assent to a set of propositions. Yet in our evangelism, in that story that I told, we, we can indicate that becoming a Christian is only that, mental assent to a set of propositions alone. We can indicate that adding anything beyond this is dangerous and wrong. People are saved by God's grace. Later on, we shall talk to them about obedience. And we call this sanctification. But does this not always rest easily with what we read in the scriptures? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now please, think carefully with me for a moment. Zacchaeus was not saved because of what he gave away. But can you imagine Jesus saying this wonderful thing if Zacchaeus had not obeyed? There is no hint of Gnosticism here at all. Only those who believe obey. And only those who obey believe. This is the reconciliation of the theology of Paul and the theology of James. Today, the monster of salvation by works is still roaming around and must be fought. It would be a serious mistake for one, and one for which I as a teacher would come under the judgment of the living God to give anyone a hope that by obeying God they could save themselves. We are poor in spirit. I come to God guilty and with open hands. <clears throat> but it is just as serious a mistake, I believe, to leave people with the impression that belief in the work of Christ is a mental assent to propositions. The thief on the cross beside Jesus, who was reconciled, ceased cursing, and if he had been let down from the cross, he would have followed Jesus. Today, the monster of liberal theology is still around and must be fought. My own daughter goes to a school where they were teaching her this. And we must contend for the Bible as being God's inspired and true word in its language.
But there is another monster loose in our postmodern day. And this monster is that it doesn't matter what I do. This is the Gnosticism. There is my mind and there is my body. There are my ideas and then there are my actions. There are my thoughts and then there are my emotions. It is no coincidence that a generation that loses the concept of God's coming judgment, that God is coming to name what was good and what was bad in the way that only he can, there's no coincidence that that generation loses a connection between its ideas and its actions. The most common thing for Christian students at Labrie Fellowship to complain of was this. I know everything about the gospel, and I feel nothing towards it. And that may be true for some of you before me today. Because ideas being true, which of course has to be fought for, is no longer satisfactory. And our evangelical theology has contributed because faith is seen as just joined from life and action. Faith is a mental thing. Life and action can follow and ought to follow, but they do not have to. People, even people in the church, have trouble believing that God is going to judge humans on the basis of what they have done. Not on what they have believed, but on what they have done. It is by faith that we escape the coming wrath. Losing the sense of God's coming and naming what was good and what was evil is one reason why people are not sure that it matters what they do today. And this is why the church and most of the sociological indicators of moral behavior is not known to be different from its surrounding culture appreciably. This is why the parable of the sheep and goats is so difficult for us and we find ourselves explaining it away. This is why Christian parents with their toddlers find certain Bible stories they just can't talk about anymore. And then we come with the gospel saying to our neighbors, you can be forgiven, it doesn't matter what you do, it's free. This only rarely sounds like good news in our culture today. It sounds like good news to someone who has been trying hard and failing at being good enough. It sounds good to someone who feels guilty, but not everyone in our surrounding culture feels guilty anymore. I've heard people say that they wish that there was condemnation and guilt because then perhaps there was the hope of forgiveness, but there is no treatment, no answer, no hope for meaninglessness. You have to listen and not just talk in evangelism, okay? Because you can do so much harm by slaying one monster when you're supposed to be slaying another one. Which monster has your neighbors in its claws and are dragging them to eternal condemnation? That's a monster worth hating. That's a monster worth fighting, right? But which one is it? Which monster is keeping them from hearing the gospel of Jesus as the good news that it is? We think it's being free is what people need to hear. Increasingly, they need to hear that it actually matters. This is going to show up some way. And as you speak that way, you will find yourself in the company of the Lord Jesus 
and the prophets and the apostles. At this point, it is okay to be having difficulty with what I am saying. <clears throat> but be careful because it may be a sign that you are captive to one time's definition of the gospel. I get accused, not infrequently, to my horror because I have to make sure it is not true. I get accused of being an enemy of God's grace, of not preaching the true gospel, of trying to save myself by my efforts of the social gospel. The great sending by Jesus of his apostles goes like this, and it suffers from its familiarity. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who does this rabbi think he is? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When have I taken seriously teaching somebody all that Jesus commanded? The Gnosticism is partly because we have let go of a full notion of sin. This is where the repair and improvement comes in. Sin is at root, not disobedience, because if that was true, then the answer would be obedience. But we've always been taught, and it is true, that the solution to sin is belief. And that is because sin at root is a distrust of God and his authority, that he understands what we are facing and that he wishes us well. Before I give in to sin I find, and disobey God, I find that I have already distrusted him in both of those ways, that he understands, that is, that he's the creator, and that he means well for me, that is, that he is good. But sin, so sin does bring guilt. And if you remembered my story, that was where my gospel presentation began, remember? Everyone has done wrong, and everyone knows that they have violated their own conscience, even if they do not believe in the living God, nor know that this God has a moral will and law. Sin brings guilt, but sin also brings corruption. The corruption of everything it touches, even the physical creation. Sin ruins shalom. On the way over here, I was taken to see Mako Fujimoro's painting, and it was talking about shalom as a painting. Sin ruins shalom, God's intention for the world and how it is meant to be. Sin ruptures each of the four prime relationships between God and a person, within a person themselves, between people, and even with the physical creation. This is what sin does. Salvation is the forgiveness of sin, but salvation is also the healing and restitution of God's shalom the peace and fittingness of everything as it was at the beginning. There is reconciliation of sinners with God, and this is what we want to proclaim in the name of the Lord Jesus. But there is also reconciliation of people within themselves, and this is what we want to proclaim in the Lord Jesus. And there is also reconciliation of people with one another, and this is what I want to proclaim in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there is even a future for the physical cosmos, and it will no longer suffer the frustration of slavery to decay. Everything you know and everything you love is in the process of dying. 
And as hard as it is to believe, it shall not always be that way. And this I want to proclaim in the name of the Lord Jesus. The good news is bigger than the forgiveness of the guilt of an individual sinner. And this is the gospel of the kingdom. God in Christ is restoring all things, making all things new. Individuals are born again and made new creatures. God is accomplishing this and we are to trust that the Holy Spirit is doing his work as we try to follow him in evangelism. Evangelism is really trusting God, that you are following in the footsteps of his spirit. The old illustration of the bridge is true. There is an individual person on one side of a chasm and God is on the other. The chasm is too wide for the individual to jump and the cross of Jesus is placed over the chasm and the person can walk across in safety. Many of us have used this picture in talking to someone about the message. And you can and ought to still use that story, but be very careful lest it lead to individualism and that a person can be a Christian without being part of the visible supernatural family of the church. This is another correction and repair that we are having to make today from our 19th and 20th century evangelicalism. Perhaps a better outline today for the monsters that we face is to tell the gospel of the kingdom. To tell God's intention to reconcile everything so that a person can find themselves in the, bigger, in the big story. They're not the center of the story, but they have a place in it. To use the whole Bible story of creation, fall, redemption, judgment, and consummation. Creation of something good. And of course, this is where the apologist must help because we have real trouble believing this as we think of a slow evolution of all things according to unchanging law of physics. That things began well and that we lost it is one of the major dividing points of what's going on in this world. The fall, that the loss of shalom was by human distrust which led to disobedience. Read the temptation to Eve and see if it is not so. And this has affected all of creation and every relationship. The person within themselves, people with one another, people with the living and holy God. Everybody knows that there is something wrong with the world. And this is what is wrong. Everything that your non-Christian friend hates when they are in their right mind, they should hate. And this is where that comes from. Redemption. This means trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. But forgiveness is only one part. Think about the wealth of things that the gospel brings us. The wealth of things that we can talk about. But that for whatever reason we truncate it and only talk about forgiveness of sins. We are also adopted. I who am so lonely and whose family is so dysfunctional. I'm so worried about my future. I'm an heir of God. But not only that, we are also born again of the Spirit. One of the most difficult things for me personally to believe is that as I look at myself, that the Spirit of the living God actually resides within me. What a wonderful thing that is. We are made, we who have been so addicted to darkness, are made clean. I am seen as innocent in God's eyes. May he be praised forever. And in the New Testament, the one concept that all other salvation concepts, and there's lots of them, fits under is union with Christ. That's the big one. Union with Christ entails all of these other 
wonderful things that we have to offer our neighbors. And then judgment. This is not popular, but I believe it is needed in our day. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He is an ultimate judge. My father was an attorney and he said, you do not get justice, you get the law. You can't, you can't get justice, you only get the law. But this judge is different from that. He knows every mitigating factor. He knows every motive. He knows everything that could have been and everything that was. The destruction of all that is evil and not aligned with God's will. That is what the judgment is. And then consummation. A new heaven and a new earth, not a disembodied spirit. Heaven does very little <laughs> for people these days when they don't understand it. Sorrows, and that's because we all suffer from this Gnosticism, but sorrows and frustrations are gone. The last enemy that is death is finally vanquished. Things are made as they were meant to be, and shalom is reestablished. I believe telling the gospel of the kingdom does away with Gnosticism and individualism. I believe that this is the answer to our first question, what story to tell? The gospel of the kingdom. Every, everything, everything needing restitution with God and him making it so. And my own need of reconciliation being part of that larger story. Who needs to hear this? Who needs to hear this? Everyone who is affected by the story. Is there any question? Everyone who is affected by the story. Who is affected by the story? Absolutely everyone. Who is to do the telling? That is the subject of my lecture this afternoon. What role does God play in this? There are many theological questions here. And I find that when we begin talking about them, we're actually, to some extent it can be God-honoring, to some extent it can be building up, edifying as Christians say. But really I find that a lot of talk about the theology of salvation and evangelism is actually postponing the work because we do not love our neighbors nor trust God's spirit to be leading us. And so we throw up obstacles that we want to talk about. But we all agree that he is before the gospel, in the gospel, and after the gospel. It is his story we are, leaving, we are living out. So here's my last observation. It doesn't sound particularly groovy, especially in a church that begins with a jazz trio. Those guys were great. What they say about Kansas is not true. Several times in my ministry, I have used a strange tool in conversation with people. And then I was very interested to find that another person in my congregation was using the same tool. And that this woman is a gifted evangelist. You ready? It was going through the Apostles' Creed with someone. The legend is that each apostle contributed one of its 12 parts on the day of Pentecost. That would have been nice, but it is not true. The truth is that it took several centuries to write. In the early church, there's a great deal of interest in the fathers these days. In the early church, it was reserved for getting people ready for baptism, which usually only happened once a year at Easter. And in fact, it was part of the service that was kept secret from non-believers until the Roman emperor himself became a Christian. I think it is a good statement that is still subject to time but has weathered many cultures.
One of, one of the things that I really enjoyed was being in an underground church in China. And uh, we stood and they said the Apostles' Creed in Chinese, of course. That was amazing. <laughs> I think it is a good statement that is still subject to time, but has weathered many cultures. I believe that we can use it to great effect as a corrective to our monsters today. I am involved in a film project on the history of the church, and I was very glad that the first thing we shot was a visual rendering of the Apostles' Creed. Because really, of course we use the scriptures primarily. Of course this is just a hermeneutic, as they say. But it does include all the gospel of the kingdom. What do Christians believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. May it be. The gospel of Jesus does not change. Each age tells the gospel differently depending upon what it faces. Then the next age needs to repair the damage. Our gospel telling can lead to a kind of Gnosticism that it is all mental. Sin causes guilt, but it also causes corruption. Telling the gospel of the kingdom is a correction and a repair. Creation, fall, redemption, judgment, and consummation. Amen.